It was as if this room that I was locked in, a window finally appeared. A whole other life appeared for me with possibilities. And so that was the journey out. Are you ready? Are you shitty down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 49 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Happy October, everyone, as we inch closer to episode number 50. And on this week's episode of the podcast, we bring the joy. That's right. It's fall. I just settled the case that was on for trial, which is a great thing. We are coming off an incredible last episode featuring top St. Louis family law attorney, Carrie Mogerman. It was producer Dave's birthday last week. Yeah. Does it get any better than this? <laughs> and your your birthday coming up next week. Couple, That's right. A couple no, of October boys. Yeah, all good. great things to come. And look, Dave, I'll tell you what. We have an incredible lineup of October episodes and featured Shine On podcast guests. What is not to love? And I'm sure if you're thinking to yourself, Shine, come on, joy. You're going to talk about joy on a divorce podcast. You're a divorce attorney. You're a family law attorney. You see people at their absolute worst, the lowest of lows, the darkest of times, when all sorts of emotions overcome each and every moment of our days. How can there be joy? Mm. How can there be even a sliver of joy or a silver lining in what you hear as a divorce attorney or what you see or what your client's past experiences have been? Well, Dave, today we get that answer. You want to find out how to turn trauma into joy, darkness into light, lows into highs. This episode is for you. Coming up on today's episode, I am joined by two-time TEDx speaker and best-selling author, Shari Elise. She kicks off the month here on the Shine On podcast. She is the author of the book, Love Yourself Happy, A Journey Back to You, and on today's episode, we are going to dive deep with Sherry. We're going to talk about her book, her childhood experiences, the trauma, the moments that shaped and impact her life forever. The impact her trauma had on her and how she bounced back to find the joy. We are also going to talk about the power of perspective and being wrong and how understanding this very thing may just be the key to understanding yourself and your relationship but producer Dave, before we even get into the docket, mm. tell us what every Shine On podcast listener wants to know. Mm. How'd you celebrate the birthday? Well, kind of low key, but my son, Adrian, who's who I've talked about before, Adrian has autism, so he can be a creature of habit. He loves his steaks. He loves his steaks and potatoes. So we went to Del Frisco's and we just stuffed our face. How good is Del Frisco's? Oh, I mean, the best. It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't get better than those. Yeah, started with uh, d fried deviled eggs into the big steaks and finished with coconut cream pie and went home and fell asleep. So that might be pretty, the best thing birthday. I've ever heard. Happy birthday to you! <laughs> I'm fired you. up for the docket, so let's go right into it. Let's do it. And now let's see what's on the docket. 
couple of interesting news items for the docket today. First one, international news comes to us from BolaVIP.com. Item one. Headline reads, Francesco Totti introduces his new girlfriend just two months after his divorce. The former AS Roma legend. This is soccer we're talking about, right, Evan? <laughs> if I gotta tell you, I mean, when it comes to soccer, I mean, yeah. I don't know much. Right? I, I don't, I don't know either. But he's a legend in Italy. He was involved in a scandal that led to a divorce, but now he's moved on and introduced his new girlfriend just two months after splitting up. What were your thoughts on this one, Dave? When it comes to Francesco Totti, here's what I know: the guy is an absolute legend on the soccer field, but off the field right now, this guy is getting eviscerated mm. for introducing his girlfriend to the world just two months after his divorce was finalized when the ink was barely dry. But let's slow down. Let's take a step back. Look, it's easy to grab a headline like this and go on the attack. How dare he? It's too soon. How disrespectful to his former spouse and his kids. Maybe. Just maybe this is actually someone he's been dating for a while. And maybe... Just maybe this is someone he had already introduced his children to with his former spouse's permission. And maybe, just maybe, his divorce took years to finalize. Would that be a shock? Look, I have this issue all the time. Clients ask me, can I date? Can I introduce my significant other to my children? Do I need my current or former spouse's permission? These questions, they could be an entire podcast episode by itself. So let me just say this. Don't judge. Don't rush to assume that just because someone is dating during a divorce, it's a bad thing. In fact, it's often a great thing. I encourage my clients to date, to find happiness, to live their lives and find the joy in a time of what seems to be an, an impossible transition. And as I've talked about before, the court system is super slow. The pandemic made it even more super slow. A litigated divorce can take years to be resolved and then to get the actual signed judgment of divorce at another 12 to 18 months on top of that. So of course, people are going to have significant others and date. And if you're in a serious relationship, of course you are going to want to make that introduction to your children. So slow down, dig a little deeper. Let's not go on the attack before we find out more information. Great thoughts. You know, it always makes me uncomfortable, these sorts of stories, because just like you say, we don't know what's really going on. It's impossible to know. These are really personal things. And the thing with the divorce is they're not supposed to be clean and neat. They're just not. A divorce is when a marriage is failing. It's a very sad thing. So, you know, observers like us, we can't expect divorce is going to be both parties show up in a conference room, shake hands and say, yes, now we can part. Now we can uh, part. And now We'll each give each other six months before we date anybody else. No, they're they're messy. They're supposed to be. So I'm with you on that one. Well, in case you didn't have enough news about athletes and their domestic situations, you knew this was coming. We're going to read you a little bit of a story from the New York Times. Bad news, I suppose, for my boy, Evan, TB12. Item two. From the New York Times, headline reads, Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen have reportedly hired divorce lawyers. I think we suspected this news when Brady was uh, curiously absent during training camp. First paragraph reads, following a period of tabloid and fan speculation over Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen's marriage, the couple has reportedly hired 
divorce lawyers. Well, I assume he hired you, Evan. So what's he like? That would be nice, except the, uh, I think the divorce is probably going to be in Florida. But That's look, right. Love him, hate him. How do you not talk about Tom Brady and Giselle? Look, I don't know how you don't know what's going on in terms of Brady and Giselle unless you've been living under an absolute rock. Look, there's divorce rumors, divorce nuggets. We can speculate. We can do it all day long. We can throw blame. We can go back and forth for days on whether Brady should have retired or not and Giselle's reaction. It's great to talk about. But look, the reality is most of it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, this is going one of two ways. The reconciliation path with a little time to sort things out or divorce. And let me say this. Although the rumbling started following the Super Bowl, I would find it hard to believe that the sole cause, the only cause of what you're hearing about with your marital issues is whether Brady should have retired. He's a football player playing in his 40s. Do you think the conversation on whether Brady should have retired or gone back to the Bucks? this is the first time it ever came up? The guy's in his mid-40s <laughs> playing the most violent and the most physical game out there. There is no way this is the cause of what you hear about in terms of the marital strife. And also, just because they've hired divorce lawyers, it doesn't automatically mean they're getting divorced. And they may. And honestly, the Vegas odds for whether they actually get divorced, may get more attention than the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> but look, when you have the wealth, the fortune, the fame, the estates that both of these two have, it makes all the sense in the world to have a team of lawyers, a team of financial experts, a team of accountants guide you to figure it out. And the other thing that it did, and I don't hear anyone talking about this, it takes just a little bit of the attention away from them. And maybe they reconcile, maybe they try to work things out with a psychologist or a therapist and they try to figure it out, or maybe they don't. But just because you hire a divorce attorney, it doesn't automatically mean that you're getting divorced. Yeah, and you know, you're right. The, the, these are the exactly type of people that should be hiring lawyers, you know, if, if the topic is even on the table. They're two of the wealthiest celebrities around. <laughs> you know, she's she's got more money than he does purportedly. And, but it, like you say, we have, we have to talk about it. This, this one a little different than the Francesco Toddy case, just simply because Brady's been one that has invited the public into his life by his, uh, not just one, but two documentary series, I, th I think, right? Tom versus time. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I'll tell you so something else you, you keep hearing about over the past few weeks is the devotion that both of them have to their kids. Right, which is fascinating because here you have two of the biggest celebrities. They travel, they're working nonstop. They have life at home, life away from home. And all you keep hearing about in recent weeks is how both of them are so devoted to their children, which is a great thing to hear. Well, you might have seen an article in Newsweek about Adam Levine's emotional affair grounds for divorce, perhaps? And wouldn't it be cool if we had one of the people quoted in the article here, an expert of sorts? As a matter of fact, we do. Let's find out more about that in, <laughs> in this episode's edition of The Shine on Spotlight. The Shine on Spotlight. Dave, I got to tell you a true story. The other week, I had at least five people say to me, both potential new clients and current clients, I just learned my spouse has been having an affair. Now, some of the affairs were mere flings, Others were long relationships that just came to light 
And in one situation in particular, there was the emotional affair. Now, this term, the emotional affair, made headlines in recent weeks thanks to one of producer Dave's favorite lead singers, Adam <laughs> Levine from Maroon 5. And look, whether it's an emotional affair or a physical affair, a judge is not going to give either any weight in the state of New York when it comes to custody or finances. Now, there's exceptions in terms of wasteful dissipation of marital assets on the financial side. But the bottom line is, look, you can still have an affair and you can still be a wonderful parent. You can have an affair and still share decision making or share custody of your child. But Dave, what's fascinating is when celebrities like this make headlines and the terms emotional affair are thrown around, the words are buzzy, right? People love it. You catch on to it. You grab it. People's minds are off to the races. And then what happens is I get five phone calls a day saying, Evan, I just learned my husband's having an emotional affair. You know, I here's the text message, you know, that I found that he sent to his assistant or, you know, that my spouse, you know, sent to somebody else. What does that mean? What's the impact? Am I going to get custody of my kids? Because, you know, my spouse is having an emotional affair. The answer to that is absolutely not. You may get sole custody for a million other reasons, but not because your spouse is having an emotional affair. And the bottom line is think long and hard about this, right? At the end of the day, this may have had an impact on the marriage, but other than that, there's no impact in terms of your divorce. And we wish Adam Levine all the best. <laughs> Dave, you're, you're a big, I, I, I know one of your favorite songs is, uh, is Payphone, you know? I, I actually do. He, uh, my, my talent here on the podcast is teasing producer Dave, but I do like Maroon 5. I like Adam Levine. I think he gets a raw deal sometimes. But, no, Maroon Five, girls like you, you know, daylight. I mean, sure. on, be honest, you like Maroon, you like Maroon Five and Adam Levine, so do I. There's nothing to be ashamed. All of. right, good. We're on the, on the same page. Great. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast is Sherry Elise. Sherry's an inspirational speaker and the best-selling author of the incredible book "Love Yourself Happy: A Journey Back to You." Sherry's a two-time TEDx speaker and recently delivered the incredibly powerful TEDx talk, The Power of Perspective and Being Wrong. She's also a fellow Syracuse University alum, and we're going to talk to her about her time at Syracuse, the college experience, and how that all shaped and impacted who she is today. Shari, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. No, I'm excited as well. And look, on today's episode, we're going to talk about perspective and how about thinking about things in a different way, a different light may just be the key to finding joy and that untapped happiness. So to start us off, tell us why being wrong can end up being the best thing. Woo. Well, I would start with saying that I am someone who loved being right. <laughs> <laughs> and I could bet that I'm probably not alone in that. My I, hands up. I, I'm guilty okay. of it as well. I'm like, please. Yeah. Don't like me. Be really this idea of always for me, it like started with this with childhood and always feeling like I had to defend myself for, for multiple reasons, but really just, oh, my friends call me last word, last word, Sherry. She always had to get the last <laughs> word. And what I found in my experience of always being right is that I found myself defending things that didn't feel good. So like limiting beliefs, I found myself defending or having to be right about all of the beliefs that I had about myself, whether they were good or they were bad. And so when I realized, which I'm sure we'll get into, that I didn't have to believe everything that I think. 
and we don't have to, it opened up an entire new world. And so I say it's the best thing to ever happen to us because a whole new world is basically born from letting go of all the things that you think that you're right about. And Sharon, you mentioned for you that that need to to, to be right at a really young age and to defend certain things. Where does that need to be right, the need to feel that you're always right? Where does that come from for you? And where do you find that it comes from for most people? Well, for me, my personal experience was really, I was, I experienced childhood trauma at seven years old. And I actually sat on a witness stand at seven, defending myself to what felt like at that age, obviously we were prosecuting my abuser, but I was being interrogated at a young age as to why I didn't do more, why I didn't stop him, like all, all of the stuff. And of course I didn't understand that at the time, but what I, I was put on the defense. And so throughout my life, I found myself that is anytime anybody would say anything to me, it was like, I immediately had, to, I was on the defense and had to defend myself. And so I always had to share, like, it was like a form of protection almost. Like if I could, if I could be right, if I could share why this means so much to me, then I would be safe. And go ahead. And Sherry, you talk about that experience. I can't even imagine going through that. And we'll talk more about that when we get into your book. But how did that experience, everything you went into, the trauma at a really young age, how did that define you? How did that shape you? And when was the point in time where you were able to look at things in a different way, in a different perspective, and use that experience and everything you went through really to help yourself move forward and think about things in a different way? Ooh, I, it shaped my entire life for me. I mean, honestly... From that young age, you start to, well, from for all of us, we start to create these beliefs about ourselves and about the world. And so for me, beliefs started looking like that the world wasn't safe or that people couldn't be trusted. And, and I didn't know this consciously. So I would end up creating relationships and circumstances in my life that always proved to me that the world wasn't safe, that men couldn't be trusted, that I wasn't worthy. So I kind of, my life was defined by that. And I didn't realize that I was having those beliefs because I found this positive path and to always be happy and find the good. And so I was like, well, I won't be a victim. I'm not going to be a victim. And so I tried to make all these choices that were unlike that, but ended up defining myself by them. And to be honest, the, the way out for me was really about being tired tired of repeating patterns, tired of finding myself in the exact same place over and over again, to finally just start taking small steps and, and reaching out for help, whether that for me, that was books that I read, whether that was listening to motivational speakers. And for me, what that did was it was almost as if, and I, I talked about this in my talk, like it was like as if this room that I was locked in, the, the window finally appeared, a whole other life appeared for me with possibilities. And so that was the journey out. And in terms of the walls and, and that you put up and, and that you felt and experienced, was there and that feeling of being stuck, how did you move forward to really have those walls begin to come down and to look at things differently, to begin to trust people, whether it's friendships or intimate relationships? How did you experience all that to take the walls down and to really learn to, to trust people in, in, in all sorts of relationships? It began with trusting myself, to be honest. So up until that point where I've started to, 
I call it awaken to, to understand that there was more out there than what was behind these walls that only began when I started really looking within. So more of self-awareness, mindfulness work, but really I would say looking at my past experiences and seeing how I got through them, that as challenging as they were, I always made it to the other side. And usually that other side somehow was better. And so I started to become aware of that and really reflecting on that. And so the more and more that I sat with that and watched myself and how I, I showed up in the world, I realized that I could trust myself. And that meant that I ultimately could trust the choices that I made, that I could trust the people because I, I believed that I would make better choices. So it was really about self-connection. And Sharon, you talk about all of this and about your journey and your past experiences and how you use that really for yourself and to help so many people. And we'll get into the book, but going back to the TED Talk, which I thought was brilliant on perspective and really the admission of being wrong and what it could do to a relationship in terms of strengthening that relationship, how hard is it for someone to actually admit that they are wrong, whether it's in, in an intimate relationship or a friendship or in a professional working setting? Oh, it's super challenging for most people. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's ultimately because the majority of us want to, and I'll, I'll say majority, want to control our circumstances, our situation, because it makes us feel safer. If everybody would just act the way that we act and show up the way that we would show up, our lives would be easier. And it's a it's a caveman type thing. Like really <laughs> at the end of the day, our, our brains want to protect us. And so holding on to what we have come to believe is the right way makes us just feel better. So I think, and, and in my experience and with people, that's what's hard about saying you're wrong, because then that means that everything you have come to know and come to believe, it's kind of like your earth moving beneath you. It's like, whoa, everything just got shaken up. But from that moment where there is that admission of being wrong, let's talk about a marital setting or an intimate relationship, I would think it could actually strengthen the relationship, whether it's in the short term or even long term. If you're able to have certain conversations, certain real defining productive moments in that relationship where you can be honest and transparent and admit when you're wrong, it will not only change your perspective and how you think about yourself, but also how you think about your partner. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's the lifesaver, like a relationship saver, like everything to to admit to to being wrong or to to making a mistake, to not fully understanding, to empathize, right? Like, I mean, that that saves that, that, that would save everybody if we could do that and really sit in that space with ourselves. But that again, takes like a deep trust in yourself that if you say you're wrong, or if you made a mistake, that not only are you still going to be stable and secure, but so is that relationship with that other person. So it's a built trust. And Cheryl, you talk about self-awareness and really looking within before you can look outward. So how can people learn to love themselves? How can people learn to, to think about whatever their imperfections are in a different way, a more positive way, and learn to also appreciate people for their own imperfections. So for me, the 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 best way that I know how to talk about self-love is, is via self-compassion. So being able to really just sit with yourself, with your emotions, with your life experiences, with all the choices that you've made and come to the understanding and realization that you're human that every single one of us are. And when I was able personally to realize that I, I didn't have to be perfect, that none of us are, 
that I was able to offer myself more grace. And we are all able to offer ourselves more grace. Because I, I remember specifically thinking in a relationship when I had hurt somebody and I was the one who hurt. And I remember how much I loved that person. And I was so deeply sorry for what I had done. It was like everything unintentional. And yeah. was I, when I was able to see that within myself, I realized, oh, so those people who do the same to you could possibly be feeling that same exact way. And so then that allowed me being able to see myself, I was able to see you more clearly and then be able to offer that forgiveness or that that space of all of us being able to understand each other. And Sherry, I love that. Now you talk about really this pressure to, to be perfect. Where does that come from? And as we look around the world today, whether it's social media and Facebook and Instagram, and really the pressures today that so many children, teenagers are coming up with, where does that, what do we do about that pressure to feel perfect, the pressure to look a certain way, the pressure to feel a certain way, the pressure to do something exactly as someone else expects you to do it? Hmm, that's a big one there. <laughs> but first, I think it, it it takes more people who are showing up in social media to be more real. To I think it takes more for us to, to share our own personal challenges. And way before it became this thing of like people being like, this is what my life really is. Like people are, everyone's authentic now and trying to show the real deal. Like when I started in this field, cause I started doing video blogs like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I would talk about my hair loss and I would talk about all of the challenges that as much as I was the joy magnet, I still faced insecurities and self-doubt. So I thought it was so important that we all need to see each other on a real human imperfect level. And so I say it starts with the people who are creating, whether it's the media or whether it's a personal influencer to really share the truths of what we're going through. And then also for the person on the receiving end to understand, to come to that realization that all of those things that we think that we need, they never fulfill us. I mean, if, if sure. we think about our own lives, right? Like yeah. we have these goals and we achieve them and then it's like, what's the next thing? I, I, I don't feel good enough. <laughs> But it's one of those things that when you're young, when you're in high school, when you're in college, it's so hard. And as I take myself, you know, back to that time period, it's so hard to, to, to realize that at that moment. And so when 15, 20 years later, after the fact, and you see what's happening, but in the moment when you're around other people and you're feeling that pressure, it's a hard thing. Absolutely. And I mean, it was when we were younger too, we had the same thing. It just wasn't social media. For sure. me, it was like looking at the television actors and, and it's really about, I think, instilling in ourselves, our, especially as parents, like self-esteem, allowing, letting our kids know that whatever choices that they make, that they're the best ones that they know how to do at the time. Like these are the things I think we should be teaching in school. Absolutely. Yeah. And having these open conversations, because I think it's part of our journey of especially during the developmental years, like that we look to other people for our guidance, right? So what if parents decided to let their children find their own way and to share with them that whatever they yeah. find and whatever they discover is okay? Sherry, you are America's joy magnet. So I have to ask you, think back to a moment or time in your own life when you experienced unexpected joy. When was that for you? Oh, absolutely. In 2010, I would, I went to Port-au-Prince, Haiti after their earthquake on a volunteer trip. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. And it was, it was just one of those moments. Like I never thought about doing missionary work or volunteer work, but I saw something on TV and I was like, I really need to go help. And a week later I was with a volunteer group and I went there thinking about with so many supplies and thinking about all the things we were going to bring to them. And I was like, so cheesy. Like, I'm like, I'm going to bring them love and I'm going to bring them hugs and I'm going <laughs> to, we're going to bring them all. This and I'm stuff. sure you, I'm sure you do that as well. Yeah, <laughs> I did. But, and when I arrived there, in the midst, and we were doing, we were rebuilding an orphanage and a school. Okay. And when I arrived there in the midst of devastation and destruction, and I mean, children with missing limbs, everything, uh -huh. there was this palpable joy that I had never felt before, never seen before, something that I couldn't explain. And it just got me, that's where my journey about joy really began because I really wanted to understand it more. So here, here is a setting where people have nothing to what we think we need for joy. And yet it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. So I wanted to find out more of what that was, who had access to what it looked like. No, I love that. What's a moment for you that was incredibly difficult that you grew that you helped develop you as a person. It really shaped who you are today. Many moments, but I would, it was like cheesy enough. I would say my first heartbreak um, in college, it was my high school sweetheart. We were engaged to be married and he was, what's the word? He was not, he cheated. <laughs> I was going to try to say We can call it what it is, sure. Yeah, but for me, what that did was it was the first time that I had trusted when I said I went through life through a lot of my life mistrusting. And it was the first person that I felt like I let my guard down with. And my whole world was shook from there. And it was from that moment that I realized that I couldn't find the stability in him or anybody else. I had to find that within me. But it was devastating. As you look back to that relationship and what happened, did it change your own search for love? Did it change the perspective or the lens in terms of how you viewed a partner or what you were looking for? Well, it definitely put me, my lens for love turned inward. Yeah. I always say like I went 5,600, and this is true, 93 days being single, like, and really <laughs> learning how to love myself and really learning how to have relation with myself because I had been looking to everybody else, partners, friendships, achievements for love, for acceptance, for validation. And, and Sarah, once people, I- Yeah, people hear so much about that. Love yourself, learn to love yourself. What exactly does that mean? And what does that look like? So for me, it looks like accepting everything about me, including all of the negative, what I deem as negative or what we do. It, it means for me being compassionate and graceful with how I feel on the not so good days. It means being able to look at myself in the mirror every day. And this is true and, and get excited to see myself like just like an old friend, but more than anything, it, it, it means being forgiving on the days that I don't show up as my best self. It's really just about being my own friend. Your book, Love Yourself Happy, when you wrote it, what did you discover about yourself that perhaps you didn't know before you started on the journey to write the book? Hmm. The ending. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I say that because I put the book off for six years because oh, wow. I was waiting for the ending. And what I ended up realizing is that there is no ending, that it's every moment that we show up for ourselves. So as I was writing the book, I was expecting this big revelation, this big fairy tale wrap up, and there was none. 
And that's how life is. It's how do you show up in each moment and give your best to each moment. What's your advice to someone who's listening, who's struggling with loving themselves, self-awareness, self-compassion, who has some days that are better than others. They have highs, they have lows, they have heartache after heartache, the relationship, they're in the mix of, of, of relationship struggles. What's your advice to someone who just feels stuck in all aspects of their daily life? I always say, first, you just start with patience. I, I think the, the most struggle we have is this idea that we have to be healed already or that we shouldn't be feeling this way. That That's most people I think struggle is the resistance against what it is that they're going through. And usually in our greatest challenges is our biggest expansion. And so I would say, be patient with yourself, spend more time with what it is that you're going through. We try to distract, right? We're like binge Netflix series, <laughs> hang out with our friends, have sure. a drink. We're all, we're all guilty of it. Yeah, yeah, because we don't want to sit with our emotions. And what I have found is that when we sit with it, we realize that there is so much wisdom there. There is so much love waiting there for us. There is so much knowledge. There is, And we also realize that it's not as big and scary as we think that it is. Like I had this idea that all the monsters in my closet were so much bigger than they were. And when I shed light on it, I was like, oh, it's just a shadow from my job. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's true, and, and that that brings up a, a question I have. When, when and you talked about, and you've been open about your childhood and, and the trauma and everything that you went through, and so many people experience all sorts of trauma when in childhood as adults. Is there something when people address a lot of people, they try to you know bury it, not talk about it, run away from it, escape from it. And then other people try to tackle it head on, whether it's with therapist or to, to, to think about it and really get through it. What worked for you and what's your advice to someone who is looking to run away from their past experiences as opposed to dealing with it head on? So what didn't work for me was running from it. And that was how I spent. And I just, I, I want to say that because most people do that and I want them to know that they're not alone. So most of us don't want to sit with that hurt. And it wasn't until I literally, like I said before, turned towards it and sat with it and asked the trauma questions, asked my younger self. I always, in my book, I talk about the moments that I had where I reconnected with my seven-year-old self. And I heard a voice to me, it was God, but it was that just said, you weren't supposed to leave her. You were supposed to love her. And so for me, it facing my trauma was really about asking my inner child what she needed from me. What can I give her now? Because we can't go back and change the past sure. and change what happened. We can only show up for ourselves right now in this moment. And this might sound cheesy, but it's changed my life and many others that I've taught it to. What my seven-year-old self said, all I wanted was a hug. And I started giving myself daily hugs every day and just sitting with her. And so I say, ask, sit with your trauma, sit with that pain and say, what do you need from me now? Because that's all we can do is show up right now and give ourselves what we need. How hard was it for you to relive everything you went through when you were writing the book? It was, it was difficult in a different, I didn't feel like I relived the actual experience of the trauma, mm -hmm. but what was challenging was to see how, how much I let it affect my life, where, where those 
pockets were where I, I could have taken a different road, a different sure. path. So that was the challenging part, but it was also it was also just so freeing. It was so freeing to get it all out there, to be able to face it, to remember it, to, you know, not run from it anymore. And Sherry, post-pandemic, if you were writing the ending now, or you were writing another chapter, given everything that's happened in the world, the times we're living in, isolation, loneliness is through the roof. People are looking for that connection. People are looking for the joy, perhaps more now than ever before. How would the ending be in the book or what would you add if you wrote the book post-pandemic as opposed to before? I would say that finding our joy, finding our peace is literally here in this moment, like in in the space between our breath. And I, I say that because we, even in the book, I'm running around and I'm searching and I'm going, I'm traveling the world <laughs> and looking for everything that existed right here. And I would say that all of the thoughts that come our way that are trying to get our attention, that we do not have to give our attention to every one of those thoughts, that we get to choose which ones that we want to entertain. They're all auditioning for us. Like, hey, pay attention to me, pay attention. <laughs> but we only have to cast the ones that feel better. And Sherry, your book is is incredible. It's it's helped so many people looking for 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 joy in the world and really to use their experiences and, and to to get through some really difficult times. Tell us about an experience for you where you helped a friend, a loved one, a coworker, anyone to find joy in the darkest of times. So I had a, a dear friend who lost their mom recently and, you know, sitting in those moments sitting with grief, one, a lot of people just believe that there is a certain process that needs to happen. And what I helped them to see, number one, is to accept their emotions, right? And their feelings and to connect more with themselves and what they're feeling instead of trying to run from it. And what happens is that when we connect with ourselves and we give ourselves the freedom to feel, we end up realizing that there are these pockets of joy. There are these moments, there are these bright lights, but we're often, like I said, in such resistance to how we think that we should feel or how we should show up and all the shoulds. So I gave her, helped her see the, the grace and the acceptance of what she was feeling, what she was going through. And then that opened up more space for positive emotions like joy. And Sherry, when people hear that you're America's joy magnet, people will think that finding joy, the search for joy, the search for love, everything would just come so natural and so easy for you. But from listening to you and having this conversation, it seems like it was the opposite based on everything that you went through. So tell everybody the search for joy. How did that come about for you? How did you find it? What was that like? And why do some people find joy and happiness easier than others? Hmm. So as I mentioned, my trip to Haiti was really what set me on the trajectory of understanding joy because I knew intu intuitively that it was different than happiness. Happiness I knew was always attached to some outcome, to yep. some material thing, to, to something that we had to achieve or I lose 10 pounds and I'll be happier when I get a new job. Like we all sure. know that I'll be happy when. And when I, when I experienced what I did in Haiti on a deep level, I knew that it wasn't anything about external 
I knew was about just leaning in inwards. And especially that people often said to me when I first moved out to LA and I was pursuing acting at the time and I was waiting tables and I worked in this really affluent area and all these people had everything that I thought would make me happy and joyful. Yep. And they were really unhappy. And I remember this one particular couple, this woman looked up at me from her menu and she was like, what do you have to be so happy about? <laughs> and I was like, oh. yeah, I was like, welcome to LA. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but so, and I remember walking, well, I did actually say to her, well, cause I'm grateful to be alive. And then I walked sure. away and thought, and that I'm not you, but uh, <laughs> But it really got me thinking because I thought, well, on the surface, like you're not really happy. And so I really had to uh, dig within it and find what that was. And what I discovered, and I already forgot most of the question that you asked, but I'm just going to go this way. <laughs> no, go I, with it. What I discovered was that happiness, the big happiness is made up of moments of joy, like the micro moments of it. Because when you usually ask people, are you happy? It takes somebody like a moment to figure it out. They're like, huh, well, I'm happy in my career. I'm not happy in my relationship. It's like this whole internal dialogue about happiness. But if we learn how, and I learned how to create little moments of joy, to allow them in, because I feel like it's part of who we are. It's our state of being. It's why kids are so connected to their joy, sure. right? And we were once those little kids. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and I so think it's about, about how, how we define joy. I mean, what, what brings us that joy? And, and you talk about really searching within, do more of what brings you those those moments that you talk yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. And I've defined, I've come to find that joy, I call them my five spark, like spark plugs that will connect you to your joy every day. Yeah. And that is connection. And it's connection to yourself. It's connection to others. It's connection to your creativity, to meaning and purpose and connection to the planet. And you don't have to do anything outside of you. It's just like literally connection to it. And once you do that, you'll find these sparks, these moments of joy. I call them like our J spot. <laughs> it's not like, because <laughs> it's like literally, literally like our ticklish spot. It's it can lay dormant, but then as soon as you- yeah. tickle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let, let's shift to your time at Syracuse, your fellow Syracuse alum. And between your time at Syracuse, my time at Syracuse college and law school, we could do an entire podcast in our days in lovely upstate New York on the <laughs> campus at Syracuse. So let me ask you, what did you love most about Syracuse? And I know, I know it's not the weather. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It was, well, it's funny because I came from Miami. I was born and raised in Miami and I went there. My freshman year was when they had the biggest snowstorm in history. I so, think every year they had the biggest snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> well, up to that point, it was the biggest. And I was like, well, welcome to Syracuse. Like, I was going to say, what, I have to ask you, what, what were you thinking going from the sunshine in Miami to Syracuse, where it looks for some people, it's the cold. For others, it's the snow. For me, there was just no sunlight for about nine months of the year, but what were you thinking? <laughs> or if you were thinking <laughs> what were yeah. you thinking? I wasn't. No, I knew that I wanted to be in New York. I was, I was pursuing acting at the time I went for theater and I got into NYU and I literally just thought, you know what? Like I wanted the whole college experience. I wanted the quad and the Frisbee and all that stuff, which of course I never did, but it, in, in my <laughs> acting mind and my movie mind, it was like the whole college thing. And Syracuse had a great theater program. And sure. so I just said, yes, not really thinking it through. But what I, what I loved was honestly, was just the experience with the friends that I made. That was my favorite part about Syracuse. As you think back to being a teenager in your early 20s on campus in college, what resonates with you now? 
in terms of how your college experience has shaped your life and your perspective when you think back to to that time in your life? It's interesting because what I've discovered, especially doing the Syracuse TEDx talk and going back to campus after 25 years for the first time and walking around, I realized how disconnected I was during college, meaning like from myself, that I was very much in 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 trauma mode, I would say, like just trying survival kind of. And so a lot of it was like, whoa, like how did I even get around here? Like how did I make it? So when I look back though, I I look at the strength that it took to, to just leave home. Nobody else had done it, to leave from Miami, to go off on my own, to pursue something that has no, not that any of our things have guarantees, but, you know, being an actor is like, and making it. Sure. Was such a, yeah. So it was just the risks that I took, the showing up, the feeling super insecure there, which I think a lot of us felt, but putting myself on stage, like to be critiqued, all of that just showed me how much like ultimately that I believed in myself and my dreams and who I am. Yeah, no, it's a credit to you and everything you've accomplished in your life. Sherry, what's your advice to someone entering college right now at that age? Just self-belief. And I know that that's easy to say, believe in yourself, but stay true to yourself that it is okay to be who you are, to show up as you are, because what makes you, you is your superpower. When you talked earlier before about trying to become other people or compare yourself to other people, like the world doesn't need a bunch of repeats. It needs you. And so just bring your you and that it's enough. Cherry, that's absolutely brilliant. Your book, Love Yourself Happy, is an absolute must read. Your TEDx presentations, your speak speeches, they're, they're incredible. Tell everybody listening where they can find out everything you're doing and view the TEDx presentations and where people can pick up a copy of the book. Absolutely. So they can just go to my website, which is SherryElise.com. And I've got my book on there. They've got my social media, which I'm so much more active on my social than I am on my website, but you could find <laughs> it's easier to find all my stuff there. Uh, you can come be entertained on TikTok or Instagram, all that, all at Sherry Elise. Sherry, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Episode 49 of the podcast. On today's episode, we bring the joy. What a show. How great was the joy magnet and best-selling author Sherry Elise. What a show. What a spot with her. We all need some joy. I know I do. She was great. Producer Dave of the Boston Podcast Network, the guy who keeps hitting it out of the park <laughs> with these fantastic dockets. Dave, what a show. What a great show. Joy Magnet. I wish I had thought of that nickname first because it's wonderful and appropriate. Dave, thank you to you and thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms and YouTube and Pod 617. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.